0: Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting this morning under an overcast sky here in south-central British Columbia. In this program, we continue our series on the conservation of humanity, today focusing on the draconian, unlawful, and unethical mandatory COVID-19 mRNA vaccines affecting so many people. Joining us today is philosophy professor Dr. Julie Panassé, PhD, formerly of Huron College at the University of Western Ontario. Her areas of specialization are healthcare ethics, ethical theory, including moral psychology and ancient philosophy. Dr. Panassi has published in bioethics, worked in the clinical settings on research ethics boards, and regularly teaches courses in applied ethics, including healthcare ethics. On September 7th, 2021, Dr. Panese was fired from her position as a tenured professor of over 20 years because of her decision not to be vaccinated. Dr. Panacea, it's an honor to be able to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your time and welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you very much.
0: Uh, Thank you for all the work you've done here to shed some light on this uh, uh, unfortunate situation. Mm. And uh, so before we get into the the meat and potatoes of today's discussion, uh, perhaps you could provide the listeners with a more complete picture of your background and experience so that listeners fully understand why you're uniquely qualified to present the information which will follow.
1: Sure, of course. So I have a PhD in philosophy and my areas of specialization are ethics and ancient philosophy. And within ethics, I have worked especially on uh, ethical theory. And you mentioned moral psychology. So that has to do with you know what motivates uh, people when it comes to actions that can harm others. Uh, what are we interested in in terms of developing our character? What sorts of things influence how good or bad we are? You know, those kinds of things. And then also um, applied ethics. Uh, medical ethics, as you mentioned. And I also have a master's in bioethics from the Joint Center of Bioethics at the University of Toronto.
0: So, I mean, the, the, they really picked on the wrong person uh, on in this situation.
1: Well, there's an irony to it, I guess, right? Yes. Because one of the things, I mean, when you when you work in medical ethics, you aren't you aren't a medical specialist, right? You aren't. And in this context, um we have a lot of those. We have immunologists, virologists, toxicologists. Um, but what we do is we try to pay attention to what's going on in the clinical setting and we're especially on the lookout for harms or potential harms or risks or focusing on decisions that are made under conditions of uncertainty. And we have those now like we've probably never had before, right? So there's so much that, you know, has been unknown and I think still is unknown about what COVID is as a virus. And I think there's a lot of um, imprecision and lack of clarity over how much risk it poses to Human beings generally, but then um, in a variable way, different age groups, different genders, people with different comorbidities, right? Uh, I think there's also, I mean, contrary to what um, our government officials are telling us, I think there's a lot of uh, lack of clarity over whether or not we have viable non-vaccine treatment options and whether or not the vaccines actually are necessary and as safe as they say so there's a lot of i think imprecision lack of clarity scientifically over those issues and then when you translate that and you're looking at things from an ethical point of view and you were particularly concerned about things like harms risks benefits uh, enabling people to live the lives they want to make for themselves and therefore supporting Autonomous or free medical decision making as much as possible. What we do in medical ethics is try to understand if the data that we're seeing is matching up to those values or, or ideals, if that makes sense
0: yeah it certainly does and and one has to question whether there's any any acceptance or adherence to the data which is in existence now or if we're simply following a narrative which has been delivered from somewhere else because you know the the scientific evidence i think at this point is overwhelming in terms of you know what the harms of these shots are uh, the age stratification in terms of what co- uh, covid morbidities are like uh, the the concept of comorbidities and yet we're told that this is an equally Uh, dangerous virus from, you know, ages two through 98, which clearly is false.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, there's a concept in research ethics called clinical equipoise. I don't know if that's a concept that will be familiar to your listeners, but it's basically the idea that when you are uh, conducting research, you need always to assume a position of being ready to, you know, reevaluate the evidence, (laughs) go back to the drawing board, be on the lookout for uh, outcomes that are, are not expected, and then ask questions about why are we seeing those outcomes? And, you know, there was just a very interesting and important article. It was published in September, so last month of, of 2021, um, and it was the journal European Journal of Epidemiology, I believe, and the authors were comparing um, data showing vaccination rates compared with COVID infection uh, disease and then mortality rates, and their conclusion was that uh, not only is there really very little correlation, but if anything, we see higher incidences of, of COVID and serious illness and death in countries where vaccination rate is high, like Iceland and Portugal and Israel, and actually lower incidence of, of COVID uh, in, I think, Vietnam and, um, uh, and I think South Africa, uh, where we see lower vaccination rates. That, you know, I mean, I I wouldn't want to make the point that the existence of one article is sufficient to, um, you know, to, to make a conclusive point that there's a problem with the vaccines, but to me any person in a position of medical authority right now and certainly our our politicians who are listening to those people in a position of medical authority should be paying very close attention to emerging data like that and then adopt this position of clinical equipoise and say well hold on here maybe the initial confidence we had in these vaccines doesn't make sense maybe it wasn't supported let's also look at the fact now i know um, your listeners maybe aren't from ontario as much but in ontario we've seen five cases of unexplained deaths among university students uh, and and adolescents. These are people who were Uh, We've had three Queen students, a Guelph, an Ottawa, and then a teenager who was a a hockey player. Um, These are students who were previously healthy, as far as we know. Um, You know, there isn't very much information available about them other than what's published in the local newspaper in their obituaries. Um, But from what we can tell, they were previously healthy adolescents and young people who suffered a medical emergency, maybe a cardiac event, um, one had a blood disorder, uh, and uh, very shortly after being vaccinated, in the majority of cases from what we know, that again, you know, again, correlation doesn't uh, entail causality, but that's data that's very important to be looking at. And so when we have our, you know, provincial health officer, Kieran Moore, say uh, repeatedly that these vaccines are necessary and safe, uh, either he he isn't aware of these cases or he's disregarding them in a way that I would consider to be reckless and irresponsible.
0: Well, I think the point that you made that the medical authorities are driving information to the politicians who are then making decisions, I think that's how it should be happening. However, I think what's happening is actually the reverse, where there's a political dictate which is being enforced upon the medical class. Uh, And I had uh, Dr. Paul Alexander on the show last week, and he had some pretty damning statements to make about the state of our medical professionals in this country, particularly within Health Canada. And uh, he used the very delicate term to describe them as idiots and morons and uh, that he has gone to school with many of these people, realized that his Canadian education was extremely lacking, went off to pursue international education, uh, and came back and then realized just how little he actually knew. And uh, he made the point that uh, in the SARS-1 outbreak, uh, the Toronto GTA area um, suffered about 55 deaths, which was the highest number in any civilized first world country in the world. And those people who are occupying those seats uh, and, I, you know, I say occupying those seats as opposed to doing a job because they're not really doing anything. They are still the same people from the SARS-1. They really haven't learned anything. And um, this is partially why we are having this very poor response that we have uh, presently. So, you know, nothing, nothing makes sense with any of this. And so one has to wonder if, there, if this is truly being uh, addressed in a scientific manner or simply a political manner.
1: Well, I think you raise a really interesting question about the existing flow of information that's relevant to public policy right now, and that's making mandate decisions, for example, at the national, provincial, and municipal, and institutional levels, right? Um, And then what that flow of information should be. And and I think the ideal that you lay out sounds quite plausible, which is that when you are in a state of medical emergency, it makes sense for the people who need to make the decisions, the politicians, to be listening to the people we would think to be most capable (laughs) of informing them, right? So you'd think it would make sense to listen to uh, people who are experts in ethical epidemiology, virology, immunology, um, including in various age populations, like in the pediatric population, so that we understand how the virus looks different in those different populations. So what what we would expect maybe is something a little bit more like a bottom-up flow of information so that we, if that makes sense, right, so that we are uh, seeing um, what our practitioners, what our scientists, what our experts who are are, are conducting the studies, like the one that I just mentioned from the Journal of Epidemiology, and and sort of understanding what's happening at the level of the human body and the people who treat the the individuals, right? Um, And then uptaking that data such that it is seen transparently and in an unbiased way, um, reflected on, and then process in a way that makes a decision that seems, you know, rational in light of having looked at that evidence. And for for the la- for lack of a uh, you know a more formal way of saying this, uh, what we have going on now is just crazy. It's not clear <laughs> it truly to me is. whether or not the people who are making the decisions are whether it's an epistemological problem, like whether they really just simply are not seeing the data right, Um, that they don't know that we have very successful, uh, effective, safe, early pharmaceutical treatment options that have to be used early, right? And when I think about the number of people who have died and who have suffered in ways that are, you know, that they won't be able to recover from merely because we haven't given them the right drugs early enough, that is appalling enough. And when we look now at the number of people who are suffering, I I just spoke to a woman yesterday, actually, uh, whose son is paralyzed now after having the second vaccine. And it's one thing for a public health official to make the decision that in times of crisis, there is no perfect choice, right? It's one thing to recognize that... um, we're in a catch 22 situation and there will be harms no matter what we do. And to be honest about that and to move forward with regret and apology and caution and all of that. But that's not what we're seeing, right? We're not seeing our public officials saying, I recognize that there are harms to these vaccines. Let's make sure people are aware of them so they can make a fully informed decision. Let's keep tracking them. Let's see what's going on and why this might be happening. You know, even if ultimately the decision is that that they uh, you know that that they're going to endorse or support the vaccines. But again, that's not the language that we're seeing. We're seeing a complete omission of this very crucial information, and then a trickle-down approach through the media to the public who believe that um, vaccination is the only way out of this crisis and a perfectly safe, and not only that, but a morally honorable one.
0: Yeah, I mean that's, and we'll get into some of those uh, coercive tactics as as we get uh, through this interview. Uh, I did want to ask you what was the response from your passionate video, uh, your your lesson on ethics uh, from the college? Was it uh, met by deaf ears and a and a termination letter? How 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 was that received?
1: Uh, well, yes, I got a termination with le- a termination letter, so I was terminated with cause. Um, and part of the reason for that is that um, the Huron College accused me of misrepresenting the situation and disseminating false information with the video.
0: Well, that sounds very Soviet esque in terms of a response. And uh, I had I had Dr. Francis Christian on, who I'm sure you've heard of, uh, who who is, seems to be a an amateur um, scholar of of all things uh, Soviet. And, you know, this type of – and, of course, he was accused of very similar – uh, offenses of uh, misrepresentation and, and you know, essentially the the one lady who was part of the, the directors there of his college or university, you know, was asking him if he needed some counseling because he was clearly mentally ill, uh, you know, that somebody in his position, why would he sewer his career by saying these things? And, and you know, he was simply saying he wasn't opposed to the vaccine for adults because I think he knew that would have been a maybe one step too far. But he said, look, there's no reason to be vaccinating your children. Stay away from the kids the the data shows that this is dangerous and they don't need it you know and I'm making a stand and for that he was crucified and I mean it's it's just so ironic that you know somebody in your position with your expertise is terminated for expressing your professional opinion on the subject.
1: Well, you know we are seeing I mean not only in public discourse but within academia and then the attempted conversations that people like me have with uh, politicians and with journalists what's become very clear is that defenders of the narrative their view is that there is no reasonable objection to the government response to the pandemic right and if there's no reasonable objection then there are no reasonable counter narrative questions so anyone who does not comply and i think it's important to to realize like compliance is a matter of turning over your will and your decision-making power to another authority and what are we as individual persons if not our our reason our own wills right what what are we as human beings that separates us from animals and and non-living things if not entities that are able to make decisions for ourselves to reflect on what the various options are that are available for ourselves and to exert our will on the world as we move forward and we act. And of course, there need to be certain constraints on that because we can't all just do what we want to do without regard for other people. Um, But that's a far cry from removing as a matter of principle, every person's own capacity to make a decision for herself and that person's own willpower. And that's what compliance is. And that's what our government is asking of us, right? Uh, and it's, it's really interesting because as you mentioned, um, Dr. Christian's uh, knowledge of, sort of Soviet history and relevant Soviet history, uh, I've noticed that there's a very high percentage of people who question the COVID response. There's some interesting ethnic patterns you notice. <laughs> very high number of them have a Soviet background, Eastern European background. very high percentage are um Jewish, many are German because both of those uh cultures have been very close to some of the worst atrocities that humans are capable of um A very high percentage are from South Africa, very interestingly South African Canadians right because they've seen. Um, what the government can do to its people and the harms of apartheid. The point I'm making is that um, we need to be very cautious, I think, of what can happen when our government tells us that we should not be thinking for ourselves anymore. When we are better people, if we outsource our thinking to anyone, right? Whether it's um, a a so-called expert, whether it's our premier, whether it's... Theresa Tam, whoever it is, right? Um, And not only are we better people if we do that, but we are bad, bordering on evil possibly, if we dare think for ourselves, if we dare ask questions.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a strange situation that we've arrived at. Um, a question for you. Yunan uh, Weiss, a U.S. military veteran and a bioengineer, has stated that our universal use of unscientific COVID measures is closer to medieval superstition than it is to science. Would you agree with his statement?
1: Can you, can you say that again? Because there was just a truck
0: going by it. Ah, uh, sure, sure. So Yunan uh, Weiss, who is a U.S. military veteran yes, and a bioengineer, it. He, he has made the statement that our universal use of unscientific COVID measures is closer to medieval superstition than it is to science. Would, would you agree with that statement?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So if we think about what the difference is between superstition and science, right? And I think probably, you know, one of the main differences is that science is supposed to be attentive to the data, to the empirical evidence. And superstition would be, I, I take it, holding a belief about the world in the absence of that. Right. So you believe that there that your house is haunted, um, despite evidence to the contrary or something like that. Right. I, I I think that quotation makes a lot of sense because I think we are seeing conclusions drawn and um, policies made uh, that just ignores substantial, substantial evidence. You know, um, I was I sat in on uh, one of the Toronto Health Board meetings a couple of weeks ago now, and it was very clear that the members of that board think that there are that ivermectin, for example, which keeps getting disparaged in, in the news, uh, called horse paste and inappropriate for humans and all of that, right? Um, that's the line that they're still.
0: Even though it won a Nobel Prize for human Even drug use.
1: Prize has been, you know, approved by the World Health Organization. Um, And interestingly, since July or as of July of this year, it has also been approved for the use in COVID by the National Institute of Health. Mm -hmm. So this line that the media wants to keep holding, which is that ivermectin is just this pseudoscience, quack science, not based in science, not approved, not appropriate for use in humans is um, undermined by the health authorities that defenders of the narrative appeal to. You know? So again, my question is, are these people just ignorant or are they trying to pull the wool over our eyes, which is apparently quite easy to do these days?
0: Yes, yes, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. So probably one of the, the questions that most listeners would love to hear answered from a bioethicist would be whether these mandatory vaccine mandates are one, ethical and two, legal.
1: Yeah, so um let me talk about the legal aspect first because it's probably the one that I'm least qualified to speak to. Uh my understanding from the lawyers with whom I speak is that a vaccine mandate would really only be potentially lawful uh, in an emergency situation, which is arguably what we have. Now, um, I think lawyers who are going to argue against the mandates will argue in the first place that we don't actually have an emergency situation because, uh, you know, our, our risks from COVID, COVID mortality rates are are not higher than um, uh, all cause mortality from other years. So if you don't have an emergency situation, then you can't appeal to that the emergency measure in order to validate the mandate, right? Um, And so I think that's the debate we're going to see among lawyers, the lawyers who feel that we have an emergency situation will say that the emergency situation um, allows for the limitation of even the most fundamental rights uh, that are guaranteed by our Constitution. And so it can be justifiable. And then lawyers on the other side will say we don't have an emergency situation. And even if we did, it's not clear that the core set of rights are viable in that way. Right. Ethically, I think this is a really interesting question. So someone asked me the other day, uh, do you think there are any conditions under which a vaccine mandate would be ethically justified? I think it's very clear they're not justified in this case. Um, You know, when you look at historical examples of highly infectious um, viruses with very high mortality rates, and you look at things like smallpox um, and Ebola, And smallpox is a highly virulent virus with an infection fatality rate more than a thousand percent greater than COVID, right? Also, the smallpox vaccine is sterilizing, which means that once you're inoculated, you are protected and can't become ill yourself and can't transmit from my understanding, right? the COVID vaccines by contrast are non-sterilizing or another, another word for that. And you've probably heard people like Paul talk about this, right? That, that they're leaky, um, which means that even once vaccinated, you can, uh, become symptomatic and, and you can transmit the virus. And there's an argument that actually you can do so to much, a much greater degree. And then we're back to that journal of epidemiology article that we started with. Right. So I think, um, The vaccine mandate for COVID are not ethically justified just because, for example, we have seen successful vaccine uh, mandates like for uh, smallpox in the early 20th century in Massachusetts, for example, right? And then there's this bigger question about, would they ever be ethically justified? And I'm not sure they would. I think that bears further consideration, right? Because now we're balancing, even in that smallpox case or the Ebola case, on the one side, we have um, a a very significant threat of harm to persons. And on the other side, we have the value of autonomy. And if you look at the core principles of bioethics um, that uh, so Beecham and Childress, who are sort of the fathers of, of bioethics in, uh, in America, articulated these four principles decades ago. So we have autonomy, non-maleficence, or not doing harm. And then we have beneficence, doing good. And then we have justice. And there are, there's there been this long debate you know, in bioethics about how you reconcile these when they come into conflict. And when we're talking about public health, the real challenge is about balance balance, the principle of autonomy, so the right of an individual to make decisions for herself and live in the way that she wants to live with harm to others on the other hand. Um, And I think those who are pushing for the vaccine mandates now think that that's an easy adjudication to make that clearly threat of harm to others is more important than than autonomy. And to me, it just isn't clear that that's true. Uh, And I think that um, different people will feel differently about this. So some people will say, um, you know, actually, I would rather live under the threat of harm as long as I can live as a free, autonomous person. So I think we need to look very carefully at what we mean by harm what disvalue it poses to our lives, and then compare that against the value that autonomy gives us. Um, And only if we think that harm is clearly more to be avoided than autonomy is to be protected, are vaccine mandates obviously justified ethically.
0: Yes, yes. And of course, I think there the important aspect uh, and a differentiating factor is, you know, who who your boss is. You know, is your boss freedom and the right of uh, the inal- inalienable rights of humans or is it Klaus Schwab and his... Uh, Uh, Agenda 2030, which, you know, again, there's when we look at the lockstep move of 193 nations across the world to do the exact same thing, you just can't help to wonder, is there a dictate that these uh, leaders are adhering to? And then when you go one level deeper and realize that uh, World Economic Forum Young Global Leader graduates are in nearly all of these countries in some position of power, you know, you you, you have to begin to draw some connections there and, and ask some questions.
1: I, yes, I think that's interesting and important. And if that's the case, you know, if we have, um, say, supranational uh, levels of organization, I'll say, that are influencing medical policy decisions at the national and provincial levels, um, wouldn't it be a wonderful coincidence for these people or a great asset that emerging It's becoming clear, you know, through this pandemic that many people are (laughs) to put it to put it sort of crudely, hardcore collectivists. Um, I didn't see this coming, to be honest, you know, when you um, when you work academically in the areas of ethics and political philosophy and and medical ethics, uh, the language is predominantly the language of rights and freedoms. Um, most ethicists are not, I think it would be fair to say, utilitarians or um, who are consequentialists and, and one of the core features of a utilitarian is that they're concerned for the aggregate or the collective, right? But I think what we're seeing this this main principle from the defenders of the the, the mainstream narrative is that we're all in it together. We're, and that's the default, right? Like you would need to show me why that's not true. I think that's their position. So we're all in this together and do your part. That is prime collectivist messaging because the implication is that if you don't do this specific thing, namely get vaccinated and wear your mask and social distance and all of these things, um, if you don't do this specific thing, then you aren't doing your part. You aren't helping the tribe or helping the team. And if you're not doing that, then you're not a good person. But that's a very specific moral view. That's that's the collectivist utilitarian view, right? Um, and that is not clear to it's not clear to me that that's the view uh, that is most good. It's not clear to me that collectivists are better people, more virtuous people. And that's not to say that there isn't room for altruism or concern for other people, regard for other people within other moral systems. But the problem with collectivism is that it completely reduces the individual to the needs of the group, completely reduces them. And so I think that's why we're seeing in Canada right now uh, a complete absence of rights talk. Um, my body, my choice is, is <laughs> I mean, I've brought it up in, in interviews and a few other people have as well, but all of that language, that focuses on the individual is lost in a vacuum in mainstream media right now.
0: Yes. So let's unpack some of these fundamental medical ethics that have evolved in our society over, let's say, the last hundred years. And some of these would be informed consent, do no harm. Uh, you know, can we or should we? And you mentioned my body, my choice. Uh, just just give us your thoughts on on how we've, you know, we've arrived, at, we've created all these uh, tenants, and now we've completely moved away from them. Um, your thoughts on that?
1: You, you want you want to know how that's happened or why that happened? <laughs> or, you, or you,
0: what? Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, and clearly, you know, in this situation, we have you know the, the this very important medical tenet of informed consent clearly is not being met. And uh, you know, how did how did we work so hard to create this, and now we've completely backed away from it?
1: Michael, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a, fair, that's a and, fair comment. I'll tell you why. I, I think it's because the question you're asking is not primarily an ethical one, but a psychological and sociological and, and you know, maybe historical one. Um, you know, one thing I've wondered about a lot. And, and, so first of all, I should say, I think you're right, that in medical ethics, we spent a long time building up these uh, autonomy protecting principles. Right, so we've talked about autonomy, uh, informed consent, and just to fill that out a little bit more, true informed consent is is voluntary informed consent. So there's two components there. You have to be fully informed, and when it comes to something like uh, vaccination, you have to be fully informed of um, you know what the product is, how long it's been in. Development, what we know about it, what the possible risks are, however small they might be I mean the Canadian Medical Protective Association makes this very clear that it's an obligation on the part of healthcare professionals to uh, disclose risks, however small they might be and that's I think almost a verbatim quotation from their um, from their documents so there's that informational component and then informed or and then consent must also be voluntary so when we see now things like you know, children being 12 uh, year olds being lured to Nathan Phillips Square with the promise mm-hmm. of ice cream uh, or people being threatened with the loss of their employment unless they submit to the vaccine mandate. Um, it's not clear that that kind of decision making under conditions of duress actually qualifies as, as voluntary. And I think it's important to realize that like a vaccine mandate of any kind is a coercive immunization program. Because if it wasn't coercive and the uh, participants or the people who are receiving the vaccine were able to make a voluntary choice, the mandate wouldn't be necessary. The mandate is in place for people who would not otherwise volunteer, right? For people who would not (laughs) otherwise give voluntary informed consent. So the nature of a mandate is to contravene this pillar of medical ethics that we have built up, that has um, been, become deeply woven into the fabric of our professional uh, organizations like the Canadian Medical Association. I mentioned the Canadian Medical Protective Association for decades. Um, so having said all of that, I have no idea why we've abandoned it. I, I, I mean, my, um, my, my suspicion is we've, you know, politically we've abandoned it because it doesn't serve the current political ends
0: yes yes and then of course we have the other ethical dilemma uh, which is now surfacing surrounding the promise of health authorities that once you submit to this vaccination that you're safe from covid and that things will return to normal and, and everything will be good but of course both of these statements are lies and create false hope uh, is this an irresponsible message to promote
1: well i think an interesting question here that would be worth posing to our public health officials is, do you take the term fully vaccinated to be equivalent to the term doubly vaccinated? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, sure, and where does it end?
1: Yeah. Where does it end? And we were told initially, right, that what it is to be full, and this is how it is currently. So if you want access to a restaurant in Ontario, for, for example, you have to show your vaccination card, which is supposed to indicate that you are fully vaccinated, but what it shows is that you've received two, um, two doses of the vaccine, right? Um, but of course, the boosters are on the horizon. Some people have received a third booster already And I think it's incumbent upon our national provincial um, medical officers of health to be very clear about whether or not double vaccination is sufficient for all time and eternity to be fully vaccinated. Uh, I don't think we've received that promise from them. And goodness, even if we had, why would it matter anyway? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, I I don't believe anything they have to say anymore. Um,
1: yeah promise making is a is a moral action, right and when you uh do something counter to the promise that you've made, especially without apology uh you have failed egregiously morally speaking you have you have done a moral wrong
0: yes, yes absolutely, and then it also seems that we're find ourselves in an epic propaganda battle where words and more importantly their effects have been weaponized. Um, and and we, we mentioned a couple of these ter- these terms, you know, in terms of we're all in this together, mass saves lives. Uh, and one of the important ones I think here is is the concept of selfishness uh, related to questioning vaccination and people who are, who, you know, like yourself or, or, or I, we're now considered to be selfish because we're not getting vaccinated and, and how dare we and, and so just unpack that if you would.
1: Yes. I, so first of all, I think you're right. I think that this language of selfishness, which is, you know, again, a moral term, it's it's a vice, if we will. It's an undesirable character trait. We don't normally think of people who are selfish as being good or, uh, you know, people who are worthy of, of, of being uh, friends with or people who are good citizens. Um, and now, I mean, the people I know who are questioning the narrative are some of the most well-read, well-researched, diligent, passionate, uh, deeply critical people uh, who care immensely about their families, their friends, and even Canadians they don't know anything about. Um, But what our government wants to tell us is that those are the people in society who are the most selfish. And my view is that these are the people and the only people who can pull us back from an enormous amount of harm we are about to do. And even if that, you know, I think there's, I mean, there's a question about whether or not it's selfish not to be vaccinated. There's a question about whether or not it's selfish to question the vaccine mandates and other, um, pandemic measures, and there's a more general question about whether or not it's selfish to ask questions in a democracy. (laughs) um, That's certainly the message I've gotten from our our Prime Minister lately, right? that uh, to be a good democratic citizen is just to become a cog in the wheel of doing good for others. Uh, But it's not your place to ask questions.
0: That sounds a bit more like uh, the CCP than uh, Canada in 2019.
1: Well, it certainly does, doesn't it? And um, I think if we're going to go down that road and we're going to say that our country is a is a democratic nation in which citizens are not allowed to question their government or to question one another, then we need to radically redefine what we take a democracy to be.
0: Yes. And, and your statement yeah, there... Sounds,
1: right. We were talking about coercion earlier and compliance. Yes. If that's a matter of turning your thinking over to someone else, well, we've seen, uh, you know, political regimes in the past that do that, and we have not ever called them democracies. <laughs> yeah, no,
0: absolutely. And, and your statement was very eloquent in terms of, you know, who these people are within our society who will be leading us out of this darkness. And certainly, these individuals that you speak of, and you are one of them, um, have not Benefited from their counter narrative positions. I mean, in your, in your case, you've been terminated. Uh, the same with Dr. Alexander. I mean, many of these people have been sanctioned uh, and vilified uh, either by the, midi- or by, the, the, by the media or these uh, Canadians that have. Been, I think now at this point are simply operating in an abject fear basis, and they've they've lost their critical thinking abilities and whatever. You know nonsense is dished up on the evening news they they're believing it like it was uh you know the truth unquestioning
1: it certainly seems to me anyway that they're you know it's worth listening to people who are worried about other people's health when those people are purely volunteers um You know, I, so I've mentioned the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. It's a purely volunteer organization, and most people in it work harder at it than they ever have at a full-time job because they believe in the cause. Um, So we're not making any money from this. Um, We, many of us have lost our jobs or are about to, with no possibility of getting other ones because the, the man, it's not like we can just you know, go to another institution or another organization because the the mandates are, are quite pervasive. Um, and not only that, but, you know, myself and, and others have said some of the worst have had some of the worst things that can be said about a person said about us in the media, and that will endure forever. And we are still willing to question the narrative because we don't want to see a uh, You know, I mentioned these five cases of of young adults and and adolescents who who have died in Ontario um, and the pure hell that their families are going through and will go through for the rest of their lives. We don't want to see one more person added to that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, when you say that you've been called all sorts of horrible names by, you know, I will assure you that there's many folks that I know that uh, sing your praises and are are deeply impressed by your conviction and your passion. So uh, keep doing what you're doing. And, and, uh, you know, I think the, it is this message of hope and and reason that is going to drive uh or bring us out of this dark period of period of time and you know these these folks that we're all now associated with as the freedom fighters and truth seekers uh i think we will be forming you know the, the new uh we will be the ones that are shaping the new canada so uh hang in there and and i'm sure there's some there's some there's some benefit for us here at the end of the tunnel
1: some sense i i sort of hope people I mean, part of what I'd like my message to be to others is not to listen to me or to listen to you, but to to um, reclaim their own... <laughs> reclaim, please, if you're listening, reclaim your, your, your own confidence in your thinking abilities, in your intuition, in your ability to do research for yourself and to make your own judgments about who you think is worth listening to. So don't, you know, don't feel that... Um, our, our public health experts should be substituted by us necessarily, but that um, it, it's up to individuals to make the best decisions for themselves, I think. And we've, we've so lost that uh, idea in our country now.
0: Yes, yes. And that,
1: I... that that would be gone. You know, someone born in the 70s, I never thought this is a thing we would have to worry about.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, to, to be fair, I think we were all lulled into a little bit of complacency because life was good. And, you know, we were doing well, careers were prospering, and, and our individuality was prospering. And so maybe we weren't Focusing on the underlying specter of, of what's happened, uh, in terms of this global subversion by some of these, uh, uh, despots. And, and here we are. So, you know, now we, we have to kind of rewind the clock 10 or 15 years and, and try to, uh, undo the damage they've done. So I have to ask, you know, the, the, we're witnessing, uh, medical colleges and associations across the country that are absurd, absurdly and unquestionably adhering to the unscientific and baseless official narrative does this I mean number one I guess ethically this is a problem and at some point legally it's going to become a problem um, and these agencies and their individual members have essentially irreparably damaged their reputations how are they going to moving forward uh, win the confidence of the public again
1: well, that, that's an interesting question. I mean, it, it assumes that they will suffer, their reputation will suffer. I don't know if it has yet, you know, maybe in different degrees in different places with different percentages of people. But um, my concern actually is that the reputation won't suffer, that they will yeah. succeed in standing by not only, you know, these vaccine mandates in this particular COVID situation, but that we will move into a new era where, you know, these professional bodies, uh, the CMA, the AMA, uh, do feel as though they can act in this draconian way that affects not only their, uh, you know, the patients, but, uh, the healthcare practitioners. Um, and so when you speak about reputation, I mean, that, um, for the, uh, associations to have a bad reputation that assumes that people are aware that there's an inconsistency between fact and, and the, the protocols that they're advising and um, the mandates that they are decreeing. Uh, and, and what we need, I think, is a transparency, greater transparency of information and the media is crucial uh, to getting that to happen and that they've not done it so far. Um, and whether we need alternative media to do that and and to be able to do it more successfully, maybe. But I think the greatest blessing we could have right now is if our professional associations do um, suffer a bad reputation. Um, You know, moral moral error is not impossible to recover from. You can, or many moral errors are not impossible to recover from. Uh, But I think it does require a stance of humility an apology and a genuine attempt to make reparation and a general commitment not to uh, be blind in those ways in the future, not to falter in those ways in the future. Um, I was watching an interview with Dr. Ryan Cole, who's a pathologist from the States, not too long ago, and he was talking about the Nuremberg Code, which nobody likes to talk about now, but uh, he very eloquently described it as a promise to humanity that we would never treat humans as um, experimental objects again without their consent, that as a group, the human race, the global human race decided collectively that we would promise that we won't do this again. We have done it again. We've broken our promise. And the only way to move beyond that is to uh, acknowledge it, apologize for it, make attempts you know, create laws, hopefully, or policies within our, our professional organizations, or what have you, in order to try to ensure that we can't um, make that mistake again.
0: Well, I think there, you know, the example you provide with the five young people that have been paralyzed, we have a similar situation here with the with the young lady. Uh, and of course, you know, there's been many, many um, incidences of vaccine injury some immediate some lo- uh, longer lasting uh, all of which the doctors deny and uh, so at some point these stories are going to become more and more mainstream and widespread and when the doctors continue to deny the 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 the, the link the causality of those vaccinations and as we're now entering into the The winter season for North America, and we're getting lower vitamin D levels and the typical respiratory and flu season starts, uh, and when we're seeing the the damaging effects that these vaccines seem to be having on people's immune system, uh, if we really do start to see a body toll, a body count, which, you know, unfortunately, I think we will, um, at some point here, there is going to be a tremendous amount of criticism and anger heaped upon, you know, particularly the medical doctors uh, and these associations, which, of course, have... Have, you know, really prevented any of their rank and file from speaking out, uh, and anybody that does, you know, I think of uh, Dr. Stephen Maltos out here in British Columbia, who's been, you know, and, and Charles Hoff, who've been, you know, completely crucified by their uh, colleges for asking questions. I mean, it's not even that they're, uh, it began in a counter narrative manner, they were simply, um, speaking on behalf of their patients and asking questions of of their both their colleges as well as the health authorities to which they heard no reply other than uh, you know an authoritative uh, response in terms of removing their privileges.
1: Yeah uh, so part of me is inclined to think that you're right and and to be optimistic and to assume that you know even doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals who want to um dismiss the correlation between these deaths and harms on the one hand and vaccination on the other hand that, that that can only go on for so long that that i know i mean i know the messaging is heavy i know the privy council's nudge unit is working hard to influence our behavior we know all of these things but Healthcare professionals, I mean, ultimately, you know, the the care for their patients and their intelligence you think would kick in and say, hold on, it's one thing to dismiss one or two or three of these cases, but I have 18 on my desk that are anomalous compared to any other year I've practiced. You know, so part of me is hopeful that we will see that. On the other hand, you know, if we think about uh, cognitive dissonance and what can happen when you start to realize your complicity in a very significant harm. So if these doctors start to realize, hold on here, Uh, are we seeing these vascular neurological effects and, and deaths because of the vaccinations? And I not only promoted them, but administered them? I'm complicit and culpable in these grave harms and deaths? what we do mentally is we try to find any reason to explain that away, right? So one option is, well, I, I wasn't really involved or it wasn't ultimately my decision to displace responsibility or blame. Another option is to dismiss away the correl- correlation and say, well, no, we still can't establish causation. It must be something else, right? And I think we are actually seeing that to a certain extent. So I think blaming the unvaccinated uh, is an attempt subconsciously well it's probably an attempt in more obvious ways than that but at least subconsciously to ensure that uh, we're, we're maintaining this line that we've believed in for so many months but as more and more people get vaccinated and the percentage of the unvaccinated becomes smaller and smaller and smaller every day what sense does that make to think that this very tiny group relative to the majority Is actually responsible for increased rates of COVID? Yeah. I mean we'd have to talk to the immunologist to to make sure we've got that right, but I think that is a question that you would think even, you know, that the lay people, non medical people, should be asking.
0: Yeah. And certainly like here in British Columbia, the report, the reported vaccination rate is about 86%, which, which I think is a, is uh high. I don't think that's a real, a real number. And if we are at that number, why why, why impose a vaccine mandate on the small percentage of people, which really just affects a small percentage of people. So I think part of this is again, you know, the, the real rate is probably more 55, 60% at the most. And that's why they're trying to implement these and you know again the 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 same argument it's like well if you're vaccinated and i'm not vaccinated what are you worried about if you have if you have this protection that you think you have what risk do i pose to you so why can't i get on a plane or go to a restaurant i mean it's 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 we're now entering the an ideological battle as opposed to something based in medical reality
1: so it seems we have three different explanatory options here we have the one you propose which is that the actual rates of vac- vaccination are much lower Uh, than than the reported rates. Uh, Secondly, let's assume that the actual rate is 86%. Pushing beyond that to 100% would seem to me to indicate that our public health officials either recognize that the vaccines are non-sterilizing, right, and therefore not as effective as they claim, or the vaccine mandates and the heavy push for vaccination is not about immunology at all. And it's about getting people vaccinated for non-health reasons. And both of those are very scary.
0: Yes, yes. And of course, you know, I think it, uh, anyone that understands uh, the technocratic uh, movement and the technocratic uh, governance of, of communist China, when we look at a digital ID, this is the next step towards social credit system and compliance. You know, it was one thing. You know people putting on a mask i mean i i refuse to do so um but that simple action of putting something onto your face which isn't comfortable and serves no purpose other than to demonstrate to the world that you're compliant now the next step is to take an injection in your arm which you know or or potentially has some harm uh you've now absolved your bodily autonomy and so the next thing you're going to submit to whatever they say you're going to do I mean this is a, this is a conditioning process of two you know two degrees of variance uh, to to cook the frog
1: we've, <laughs> yes we, we've never had this kind of digitization of Canadians anyways uh, and I think arguably globally but Canadians medical records and that is a separate but related, issue with its own set of ethical concerns moving into the 21st 22nd century Um, and you know i i would be quite curious actually to ask people who and i suspect people fall into different groups but to ask people who have been vaccinated and who support vaccination or even mandatory vaccination whether or not they support the idea of um their access to public spaces or their participation in society moving forward for the rest of their lives being controlled um, in a digital way. And um, basically what we're saying then is your ability to participate in society depends on you making the acceptable medical choice. And we have never uh, connected medical decision-making with political participation in that way before. And so there are a lot of, I mean, there's so many questions there, that be another hour to, to discuss. But those are questions we need to be asking, I think, and looking at.
0: Yeah. And and that's, you know, that's a frightening future if that's where we're headed.
1: Especially as we're looking to vaccinate 5 to 11-year-olds. And I wouldn't be surprised if infants before the end of the calendar, or before the end of the 12, next 12-month 12 period, yeah. uh, which means that our, our youngest children... Will never live a non-digitized life.
0: Right, right, and which which is a, which is no, a, no, right? yeah, which which is a great segue here. But my, my next question was uh, focused on our youth, and it sure seems that we've we've seen an organized campaign by our health authorities to leverage the vulnerabilities and insecurities of our youth of all ages uh, towards this compliance and obedience. Uh, have you recognized this trend as well?
1: One of the most chilling things I've heard in the last two or three months was from a university student who said, basically, no one under 40 thinks that anything good can ever happen again.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: Yeah. And this person also described uh, the feeling, her daily feeling as being sort of a darkness closing in on her. You know, university students that that I've talked with, there there are different opinions among them. You know, many of them are the kinds of collectivists that I've spoken about before, and think their you know their belief in getting vaccinated is for the sake of others. Um, most, I I would not say that most with whom I have spoken believe that they are at significant risk from COVID, right? But they're doing it either to protect others because that's the messaging. The most common thing I've heard is I just want to get by. Right? I, I just I just want this to go away. I just want to get by. I'll do what I'm told. Fly under the radar. I don't want attention drawn to myself. That's the most common. And and that is um, such a sad. And I don't mean to disparage them in saying this, but um, the fact that we've gotten to that point is such an incredibly sad state for our youth. As adults, we should be protecting our children from having to make those kinds of choices, those that kind of pressure. You know, um, th- if they choose to get vaccinated, it should be because they believe it is the best and the only option for themselves. And I think if we framed that clearly to them, we would have a much much lower rate of voluntary vaccination in the adolescent group.
0: Yeah, so I've got a, I got a two-part question for you. Um, the development of critical thinking skills was once the focus of university education. <laughs> this seems to be, this, this supremely important concept seems to be replaced by unquestioning obedience and woke politically correct group thinking. How, what has happened here? Is, is this been a slow process of decay or, or is this a, a sudden shift? I mean, you've been uh, in the university setting for the last 20 years. Give us your take on how we've morphed from these two diametrically opposed positions.
1: Yeah, we're kind of back to that question for which I don't have an answer. I This really snuck up on me, I have to admit. I mean, it's been very clear working in ethics for a long time that, um, you know, controversial issues like abortion and feminist rights and, and that those are sort of settled and one cannot uh, reasonably oppose them. That has sort of been clear. But this, and I think there are you know, problems with that, but that's sort of beyond this conversation. But um, this idea that one cannot question any academic mainstream way of thinking um, I think it's true that that has been developing gradually, but it was a surprise to me i It, it was lurking under the surface, and I think it is just uh, it's reached the boiling point and it's become evident it's it's hit the surface. but I have to admit that i didn't um, I really didn't see the precursors to this event. Now I would say it's very clear that uh, critical thinking is um it's lost it's floating in space somewhere, maybe never to be regained again by our academic institutions. I don't know, I hope that's not the case. Uh, One sort of economic and political dimension of this is that we are seeing a number of different academic institutions become much more like um, uh, business entities. So at Huron College, for example, uh, they developed and expanded their board of governors very significantly within the last couple of years and most of the people who sit on the Board of Governors are leaders in business. You know, there are people who are CEOs of, of our major financial institutions, major scientific um, uh, you know, organizations. And um, when you place ultimate decision making abilities in the hands of business people rather than in the hands of intellectuals, and if business is primarily motivated by financial considerations, then everything at a university, uh, all of the decisions that are made, whether there are big ones in terms of how to finance a physical plant or small ones that that trickle down to uh, how professors are allowed to design their syllabi, um, all of those decisions will become judged in relation to how they serve those financial ends. And to me, the universities feel much more like massive corporations than they do uh, like the fulcrum of, of critical thinking in a democracy. And I think we will continue to have all the problems that we've talked about over the last hour unless we can rescue our academic institutions from that kind of sort of a political and, and commercial capture.
0: Mm. Interesting, interesting, and then sort of in some concluding remarks, as I know we, you've got your little one to, which could be waking up from a nap any moment. Um, so th- this this has always been a solutions focused show, not just uh, griping and complaining. So looking for your advice to the average Canadian that still believes the nonsensical official narrative and continues to live under fear and compliance. What advice do you have to that person? Maybe some simple, um, maybe some simple questions or something to turn the light bulb in turn the light bulb on in their minds to open them up to maybe what's going to what's really going on here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I have two thoughts on that point. You mentioned fear. Um, Please don't be afraid for, you know, I mean, it's a terrible state to live in. It's a terrible kind of mental anguish. But also, we know um, from from psychological uh, evidence that uh, good decisions are not made under conditions of fear. There, there is a small sense in which that is true. Like the the adrenaline that you get from a fight or flight response from a short period of time can enhance decision making capacities. But over a long, when we're talking about months and now years of this prolonged uh, sort of fear and, and stress. Um, you know, we tend to give the wrong kind of attention to the wrong pieces of information. We just have a kind of myopia. We can't see things clearly. So I would encourage people, please don't be afraid. Please uh, do your own research. And um, uh, secondly, you know, you, you mentioned at the beginning, you were going to ask me about some of the figures in the history of philosophy, and Socrates is very well known for saying, and this will probably be familiar to some of your, your listeners, he's very well known for saying that the unexamined life is not worth living. And we've been talking about what it means to be a good citizen, a good um, you know person in a democracy, and how our government now is telling us that we shouldn't ask questions, which means that we shouldn't examine our lives. We shouldn't examine the society in which we live and work and try to flourish, that we shouldn't examine the actions and the decisions of other people. And if Socrates is right, uh, what Justin Trudeau is telling us to do is a life that's not worth living. And so I guess I would ask people, what kind of life do you want? Do you, do you want a life in which your government officials are um, conditionally happy with you, and I say conditionally because even though the vaccinated are being patted on the back right now and giving, being given freedoms and, and, and access to things that the unvaccinated are not, that can be a moving goalpost, right? Who's to say that the post won't move to a place where you aren't willing to consent or where you can't consent because of some, some feature about yourself, right? Um, ultimately, you know, I, I would just ask yourself, what makes for a good life? how do you want to leave this life what do you want to look back on 10 years from now who do you want to be what kinds of decisions do you want to make what will you feel okay with at the end of the day and is it what you're doing now or do you want to kind of go back to the drawing board and think a little harder about what we're doing and what we're seeing and what we're reading and ask does it really make sense
0: yeah, that's that's really well said. And that, that's a, a question that I think, you know, the average Canadian really needs to begin to ask themselves, uh, particularly, you know, which conditions are you ex- willing to accept? And, you know, those conditions may be well outside of what you think may be coming down the pipeline. So if you said yes to this, what are you going to be asked to say yes to or or be forced to say yes to for your children uh, moving forward? And, of course, you know, having to vaccinate your 12-year-old child so that uh, he or she can play sports or go to the movie theater with their friends uh, for a disease which they have no or very, very, very low likelihood of of suffering any long-term consequences or spreading that disease to anyone else around them is madness. That doesn't make any sense.
1: You know, I think there's probably a sense in which we are in a bit of a honeymoon period now. Uh, The vast majority of people have been doubly vaccinated. Most of them feel great. They are getting to do all the things they haven't gotten to do over the last couple of years. Uh, I'm starting to see all kinds of, commercials for Christmas, and the messaging is we can finally gather with people again. I think people are are in a period of feeling quite optimistic, and uh, especially people who are extroverts or who haven't been able to see family members for a long time, they're just feeling so excited and happy and grateful that they get to do this. Um, and my goodness, let's let's hope that their confidence is genuine and not misplaced. But I think the data suggests that it is misplaced, unfortunately, and we will have to see what happens going forward um, when, that, when that honeymoon is over.
0: I was just going to ask your uh, predictions for the fall and, and you gave it to us. So that's, uh, you know, I, I unfortunately share that. And, and I think that uh, humanity is in for some more darkness before we see some light here. And, and uh, you know, this is going to be a, a difficult lesson learned. But uh, as with everything in life, uh, you know, what, what you th- those lessons which come the hardest uh, are the are the most difficult or often the most important and uh, meaningful uh, as we progress as a species here
1: don't think we can't expect humans, ourselves included, not to make mistakes, but I think we can expect of people that we do our best not to make the same ones over again and to, to, to be self reflective enough that we're we're trying always to identify whether we're making mistakes or not and then move forward trying to do our best.
0: Yes, absolutely. I think that's all for today, uh, Dr. Pinesse. I I, uh, value your time today, appreciate everything that you're doing. And uh, if listeners would like to learn more about you and your work, I know that it looks like a lot of your stuff on the web has been pulled down. Uh, Is there anything up still where where I could direct uh, listeners?
1: Yeah, the, um, so probably the easiest thing to do is to go to the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. There's a, our website's pretty easy to find. Um, we have a lot of information there about, about the vaccines, about the virus, about alternative treatments. We have legal resources. We have uh, ethical uh, commentaries on things like informed consent. There's a really interesting article on, on ADE and informed consent, which is one of the side effects of the vaccine. So people can, can definitely uh, find a lot of information there.
0: Okay, and and is that ccca dot org?
1: It's uh, CanadianCovidCareAlliance dot org.
0: All spelled out. Okay, okay, excellent. All right, fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, and uh, let's look to uh, link up again in the future. Here, as we've got some more uh, information to share with the listeners.
1: Sounds good. Thanks, Michael.
0: Fantastic. You have yourself a great day.
1: Bye bye.